You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It is Thursday, December the 16th. It's still not all that cold for the time of the year, but it is a little grey, a little damp outside here in TW11. And today is all about new beginnings and the end of an era. Charlie Johnston will join his father, Mark, as co-trainer at their enormously successful Kingsley House base in Middleham as of January the 1st. News very close to our hearts here in TW11 is that Park Lane Stables, the very important riding school here in the heart of the town, is once again open for business after Natalie O'Rourke was given the keys last night and the purchase finally went through, which is great news for the community and for inner city riders here in London. But the end of an era with the retirement, the official retirement, of arguably the greatest dual-purpose trainer of all time here in the UK. David Ellsworth was not only the trainer of a true folk hero in Desert Orchid, that would have been enough to mark anyone's career in and of itself, but also on the flat with horses like Persian Punch and In the Groove and Dead Certain and Arabian Queen and many more. And that glorious period at the back end of the 80s and 90s where he simply dominated the top class jump races, not only with the great Desi, but with horses like Barnbrook again, and Cavie's Clown, and Floyd, and names that simply trip off the tongue. And that's notwithstanding his Grand National winner, Ryman Reason. He was champion jumps trainer, he's been a Group 1 winning trainer on the flat, but he finally has called time on what's been an amazing career, and I've been asking him why. Well, well really, uh, I, I didn't take any two, I, I didn't take any horse, I've got no horses now, I've dispersed with them, and um, it was sort of... Um, I would say it was planned, but I, I didn't intend to, to train next season. But um, I was a bit reluctant to sort of, uh, to, to you know, getting off the merry-go-round wasn't just as simple as I thought. You know, you've got people to deal with and so on and owners. But um, I, I've, been, I've been dithering about it for a long time. Okay, so so you said something quite interesting, I thought, in the papers. Today. You said it's not as though you've had depressions but you've had waves of enthusiasm for the sport so you know, some some years you've you sort of attacked it with a bit more more gusto than others what what sort of what sort of place are you in now do you think oh god um you do ask easy questions nick don't you? um i i feel very relaxed about it and um i i'm i'm pondering on you know i've just got i've got ends to tie up uh, with the business and the, um, and, the and, and so on, and uh, I, I'm I, I'm not sure. As I said, I didn't want to make any plans for a retirement because I, I'm sure it changed my mind. I just thought I'd let it happen and play it by ear. Is it ever possible, though? Do you think to really get horses completely out of your system? Are you one of these people who could just go and do something completely different for for however long, or are you always going to have to be in it somehow? Do something, tinker around with something. 
Yeah, well, uh, that, that's in fact what's sort of happened. I still got a, a couple of two-year-olds coming, three-year-olds uh, turned out in um, up in Yorkshire there, and I now have a couple of foals and uh, also, um, and I, I might, might syndicate these two-year-olds who are coming three because um, they're you know they got potential and uh, it'll, it'll, it'll give me something to do. Uh, so uh, I'm not completely. Um, uh, won't be completely on it. I will be involved in sort of on the fringes, if you like. And uh, Yorkshire's been a very kind county to you. York, the racecourse particularly. You were saying to me the other night that that, that is somewhere you might spend a bit more time. I like Yorkshire. It's um, it's um, part of the world I I hadn't explored until the last few years. But it's uh, it's um, it's a different culture up there. Funny enough, you know, and people. That, all the people are different wherever you go, but uh, no, I, I, I enjoy I enjoy Yorkshire. It's uh, it's a great uh, racing county, as, as you know. There and York Racecourse itself has been particularly lucky for me. Uh, I know you're not really someone who particularly loves to sort of trawl back through the back catalogue and bask in bask in self-love but it would be remiss of me on the day that you announced your retirement or the day after you announced your retirement not to ask you for sort of moments through your career that have resonated with you you know really strongly where where you felt this is why I did this in the first place um well, it sort of crept, it creeps up on not just me, everybody who's in the business. I, I didn't set off as to be a, with an ambition to be a successful trainer. It, it's just something that happened. Um, I, I rode, uh, as you know, with mediocrity and for a long time, but really enjoyed it. And in the involvement with horses and then um, I sort of run a livery yard, which then I, I thought, well, you know, I might as well have a go at training. And it's been a great adventure and, and great fun. Um, I, and, and something that, you know, it, it wasn't difficult, really. Um, and I, I, I've, I've been very lucky and I've had a fantastic, uh, fantastic time, really, training. It's been great. Um, and as regards, you know, it was, as I say, it wasn't a plan. It just fell into place. And and obviously, the the sort of one key point that everybody will mention is how effectively you managed to train horses jumping and flat. Um, those days toward the end of the 80s where you were sort of right at the top of the game under both codes, they must have been pretty, pretty heady times. And I don't suppose you could really stop and, and reflect at the time what you were achieving. No, it's always different inside looking out and and then then the outside looking in. People who you surround you look at it's a different you know it's a different situation, different position to be, a different set of eyes. And, uh, but as I said, it crept up on me, and <clears throat> I. I, 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 I'm not being modest, and I've said this before. You know, I, I was remarkably lucky with uh, the the talent that I, I acquired. You know, the horses and uh, <clears throat> the people who work with me. You know, they, they we, we we were very um, well. It just it just happened. But uh, I know I know you know in life. The most important factor is, is is your good fortune, your good luck, and, and I've had it in abundance, really. Um, Elsie, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure to to talk to you this morning. I, I can only wish you all the very best for um, whatever the next few years hold, and and 
thank you for, for all the memories. Well, thank you, Nick, and I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all the <clears throat> well-wishers and people that have contacted me, um, who I'd probably never get around to replying, but uh, it's, it's, it's very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's very, it's, it's, very, it's been very supportive, and I, I'd like to thank them all. Uh, David Ellsworth, I get, you give him every opportunity to bask in the glory of some of those those great names, and and he he resolutely rejects that. And it was it was lovely to to hear him there uh, pay tribute to all the people who've, who've helped him along the way. But he is he is Lee Mottishead, senior writer from the Racing Post, too modest a man for the achievements um, that that have that have come his way, and that he is and the opportunities that he's given so many people. Yeah, he really is, Nick. And I think it says a lot about him that he has wanted this to be just about as low-key a retirement announcement as possible. I think it's been obvious now for a, a while that he was he was set to retire. I remember I went down to see him during the summer and at that point he was saying he was 50-50 whether he'd carry on or, or not, but giving very strong hints that, that the end was nigh. Um, and I think over the recent weeks, it's become obvious that the end was very nigh indeed. Um, but he hasn't wanted to to announce it. I spoke to him yesterday and he kept saying, it's not a big deal. I don't want any fuss. Don't want a big hoo-ha made of this. But I'm afraid on this occasion, we, we, we've all had to um, say, I'm sorry, Elsie, but no, it, 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 is, a, it is a big deal. Um, he has been the most enormously successful trainer um, over such a long period and with so many different sorts of horses. Um, we've referenced him in the post today as, as Britain's greatest ever dual purpose trainer. Plenty of the people have. And I think it's entirely fair. You know, when you think he was uh, winning major jumps races with horses like Desert Orchid and Barnbrook again and Ryman Rees and at roughly or exactly the same time he was winning a top flat races with horses like In the Groove and Seattle Rhyme. Um, he was at his pomp uh, extraordinarily successful. Um, and as others have said, I don't think it is a coincidence that um, I think undoubtedly the most popular horse we've had trained in Britain, perhaps ever, and certainly for a long time, Desert Orchid, and one of the other most popular horses, Persian Punch, were both trained by him. He did marvellous jobs with those horses uh, and with many other horses. I think he's not wanted to single out Punch and Desi because he has got such a, a long and illustrious back catalogue of, of champions. Great with horses, great with people as well. He, he paints himself this image of being a cantankerous, cussed old so-and-so, but I've not had that, Nick. I know from speaking to you earlier, you've not had that. And I think there's an enormous warmth um, around LZ2. I think people are genuinely very fond of him. Um, I think they like him as well as respect him. And I think people will, will really wish him well as he, as he goes off into what's hopefully going to be a, a long and, and happy and I'm sure adventurous retirement as well. And Nick, if, if, you'll, if you'll just um, allow me just to tell a couple of little stories of, of, of time with LZ, because you know yourself, whenever you interview LZ, you get fabulous materials you have this morning. Um, and there are just a, one interview quote that, that always stuck with me. Um, and I, I think it, it, it relates to the fact that I can't recall of there being many trainers who, who've impressed me with their, their affinity with horses, the way they get on with, with horses. 
and their understanding of horses. And I remember back in, in 2013, I interviewed him in that, at that famous Chinese restaurant just up from Newmarket High Street, or on Newmarket High Street. Um, and I asked him about why he'd stopped training jumpers. And he told this story of a horse called Fiend's Flutter, um, who was running an obvious chase at Lingfield on the last day of January 1997. He was horsey, he liked, he was a horse with potential. Um, and he said he was brilliant, but he was wild. I liked him a lot, and at Lingfield he was having his first run over fences. He fell and broke his shoulder. I went down to the fence and sat with him. He was a good boy, and he trusted me. Maybe it was just my imagination, but it seemed as though he was looked, looking at me and asking, can you help me? But I couldn't help him. I couldn't do anything. They shot him. It's not good. And at that point, he walked away. He got emotional and he had to leave the room for a second. And I thought what struck me, Nick, was that that was a story he had told more than once. I'd, I'd heard the story. I heard of the story before. I knew of others he, he'd told the story to before. And yet even in the umpteenth telling of the story, it made him emotional. And I thought that, for me, told me how much he cared about his horses. And in terms of his, his, um, his understanding of horses, his connection with horses and how they trusted him, um, for me, the, the, the Persian Punch is, is very much a, a great example of that. I was very lucky years ago, I wrote a book about Persian Punch. He was a horse I absolutely adored and Elsie was great through that whole process. And as I was finishing the book, I, I used a scene um, that had been described to me by one of Elsie's great mates, Junie Brown. And it was three days this scene occurred before Persian Punch died at Ascot. Um, and Jeannie was saying that she'd seen the horse without any tack, um, grazing on the lawn in the middle of the big yard uh, at Whitsbury. And he said, uh, Jeannie said that as she watched the horse eat, she was seeing Elsie grooming the horse, no tack on him. And then when the grooming and grazing was finished, Elsie walked back to Punch's box and Punch, of his own free will, just followed him in. And just actually telling that story makes me quite emotional as well. Um, I think it says so much about him. Um, and he said to me in a, in a piece this year, they used to think I was mad for letting a racehorse loose in the yard. He was very honest, though. There's an enormous understanding and trust between us. I knew he wouldn't let me down. He was a good old boy. And I sense that when he looks back on, on his career, he remembers lots of, of good old boys. And that's probably why he doesn't want to single any of them out. Um, but I think he should be singled out. I think he's been a, a fabulous trainer, uh, a great man for horses um, and a great man for racing. Well, one man who got to know David Ellsworth extremely well was trainer Rafe Beckett because he took over at the Whitsbury training establishment where David sent out so many of his, his big winners. Uh, Rafe, getting to know David Ellsworth was, I would imagine, one of the great pleasures of your life. It, absolutely, Nick. I got, I got to know him originally because I was... Uh, Jeannie Brown, his long-time assistant, was a old friend of mine. When we were moving to Whitsbury... I asked if I could go and stay for a night and see the horses out the next morning before David moved, you know. And uh, I went down and apart from hearing a selection of uh, his best stories, I learned absolutely nothing about the way he used the gallops at Whitsbury. And the Whitsbury is a very complicated place to use. It's the sort of place where you have to get up in the morning and beat it with a stick. There's a lot of gallops, there's a lot of... There's a lot of uh, variety there you have to grab a hold of the place and um i quickly realized that once i moved in but 
because everything that David did was entirely in his own head uh, and it was all done by feel, it was very difficult for him to relay what he'd done um, to the likes of me. So he was one of the great instinctive trainers then. Uh, The idea that someone can be as adept at training these brilliant staying chasers as he did in the the 80s, these brilliant two-mile hurdlers, sprinters, classic horses... Can you get your head around that? that? That was always the bit that I never got because when we went when we went to Whitsby, I thought we might train a few jumpers, and I summarily failed at that. And I could never work out how he managed to operate out of three different yards spread over a mile with the variety of horses he did. I, I never worked out how he managed it, and that was a genius, his genius in itself. What sort of man do you think David Ellsworth is? Because he's sort of characterised in a certain way. He characterises himself in a certain way as sort of gruff and cantankerous and so on. I think he's, I think deep down he's a very warm-hearted individual, uh, generous-spirited, I think. Yes, he's got a short fuse, uh, but his perceptive nature with horses, I think, comes through with people as well you know he doesn't suffer fools obviously um and i shouldn't think he was ever easy to work for but you know he inspired huge body as well rodney bolt david crofts who uh, i inherited from david as, as a head man and is still at whisper looks after looked after mahatha for marcus Trigoni. david would have worked for him his entire career if if, if, if uh, david ellsworth hadn't moved you know? and uh it was uh, you know i think you know, Paul Holly was with him a long time as well. I think he, you know, although as I say, he wasn't easy to work for. He was a he was a a, a gifted trainer of horses and and uh, and people. Now, Rafe Beckett there with his thoughts on the extraordinary career of David Ellsworth, and as a, a glorious, glorious chapter draws to a close, a, a very significant one opens with the news that Charlie Johnston will officially join his father, trainer Mark, as a joint licensee from January the 1st. Mark Johnson is the most successful trainer in Great Britain numerically of all time. And this is going to take the Kingsley House operation to a to another level, they hope, Lee. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Nick, if, if just as um, Elsie's retirement wasn't the biggest surprise in the world, nor is this in the sense that it is completely logical. Um, Mark Johnson has regularly stated how important uh, a part Charlie plays in the running of that um, operation. Um, he's clearly heavily involved. They clearly train pretty much as a as a duo now. So it's logical for this to happen. Um, we shouldn't be expecting Mark Johnson's retirement anytime soon. Charlie makes a point in, in his comments today that everything they do really is based around a five to 10 year plan, uh, business plan. And this fits in with, with that as well in the sense that it gets him on the on the uh, as as the license holder, he gets his name on the license, and therefore, when the time does eventually come that Mark decides uh, he wants to come off the license, um, people will be used to having Charlie's name on there. So it's completely logical, um, and I suspect going forward, um, it, it should make the team uh, even stronger because for all that Mark has been enormously successful, in fact, successful to unprecedented levels. 
I think he would recognise that any business benefits from young, new blood, new thoughts, new ideas coming into it. Charlie's already been doing that, and I'm sure he'll continue to do that now. Uh, there have been prize money announcements plenty this week, uh, Lee. You can tell Christmas is round the corner. There's all sorts of, sort of bountiful <laughs> news coming from, from race courses. And there's more still, more still. Um, what's happened today? Yeah, and I think this is, as with the other announcement, Nick, it's particularly uh, to be welcomed. So as you said, we've, we've already heard uh, recent prize money announcements from, from Ascot and from the Jockey Club and from, uh, the, uh, from ARC before that. And what was announced yesterday is a new partnership between Kempton and Coral, which focuses around two of, of Kempton's uh, big winter Saturdays. In fact, Kempton's two big winter Saturdays in January and February. The, the Lanzarote Hurdle card will be worth £255,000 this year, with the Lanzarote up to £100,000 from £45,000. And the same card, the Sylvian Aqua Conti Chase, that's a grade two over two and a half miles. That goes from sixty grand to eighty grand. And the big... The big handicap chase in February, which in the old days used with the racing post chase, it's a different name since then, will rise from 100 grand to 150 grand. Now, in itself, I think that is to be welcomed. I think it's particularly to be welcomed because there is a consensus view, I believe, that it is in January and February. Those are the two months within the core season when the sport perhaps struggles to to connect with the audience we have this marvelous run of saturdays through november and december they rather tail off in january and february there's a need to reinvigorate those two months these this this will, will help that i think also within the announcement um there are significant rises on that february card for two novice events the pendle novice chase which goes from 32 grand to 60 grand and the adonis juvenile hurdle which goes from 30 grand to 60 grand and that's important too because within the the British jumps pattern, uh, where we really do often fall down relative to Ireland on the prize money front, is within those graded novice races. And of course, they're the, the races, along with general novice races, in which owners will get an immediate sense of, of their financial return when they start winning. And if it's bad initially, that's going to set them off on the wrong mindset. So I think it's really to be welcomed that Coral uh, are pumping money into these Kempton races. Um, and I think it's further to be welcomed that the novice races in particular are getting a, a big boost. It, 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 it's really good news um, and fair play to Coral and fair play to Kempton. Now, I'm sure a lot of you will have noticed that we weren't able to go around the Bloodstock world with our friends at Weatherby's on Tuesday, but we can go around the Bloodstock world with our friends at Weatherby's today, Thursday. The 2022 Weatherby Stallion book is out. The Global Stallion app has been refreshed with new entrants and a longtime supporter of the book is Gestut Rutgen, one of the great German stud farms who stand three stallions, reliable man, protectionist and Vinstus. And I'm delighted to say, and he is uh, in transit at the moment, but uh, I'm hoping he can hear me. I can welcome to the show Frank Dorf, who is the manager of this great and historic stud farm, which Frank has a, a pretty amazing and illustrious history. Yes, we are very close to Cologne, to the city. We have 10 minutes by car to the central and the stud was founded by the late Peter Mullins, owner of the company 4711 um, Cologne Water, so he produced perfume. I think at the time, it was 1924, it was a hobby, it was quite new in Germany, and it was very fashionable to have racehorses there. Uh, and was there, was there instant success? 
he invested a lot. He created a stud who had um, 300 hectares of land. And he was, I think, a major player at the time. And his first success was then 1932, as he won the German Derby, which is with the horse Palast Page. The biggest time was then, after the Second World War, um, his daughter had a great time during the 50s and 60s. You know, and then I guess something really momentous with the victory of, of Star Appeal, who became the first German-trained racehorse to win the arc, although foaled in Ireland, bred by uh, Gestut Rutgen. That must have been a sort of seminal moment for, for German bloodstock, really. Yes, I think it was um, as Toccato Tassa nowadays. He was a big outsider and it was a big shock for the um, international thoroughbred breeding world that a German horse has won the arc. And you mentioned Torquato Tasso, and we've seen the influence of horses like Monson and Manduro and, and Scirocco and Lomitas and others. Do you feel that the, the, the bloodstock world is really developing a, a real reverence for the qualities that, that are embodied by, by German bloodstock? Yes, I think that uh, the German breeders are very consistent and world-class breeders, especially um, in the world of the staying horse. Since the beginning, we have a very uh, tough breeding system, so it's only allowed to have real proven racehorses as a stallion. I think that due to this fact, um, we have very, yeah, very sound and tough horses here in Germany. And two of those very sound and tough horses were your two consecutive winners of the of the German derby Vince Toss and Veldstar now you're standing Vince Toss as a as a stallion now he's third to the the cracksman in the coronation cup as well how's this project how's this project going um yeah we'll we'll see um some of the smaller breeders will use him because um he is by a not very fashionable stallion um he is by Shiroko and nowadays, uh, the people are more looking for the Galileos and Frankel of the world. But German readers see that Winstos was a very, very tough, very consistent horse. He ran in more than 23 group races. And uh, he always showed his, um, his ability. And Protectionist is a, a, another one that, that you're standing at the moment, the Melbourne Cup winner in 2014. You know, what sort of interest have you had in him? Um, he was, or oh, he is, um, very popular in Germany. Um, he covered in the last three years roughly 50 mares each year, uh, which is for Germany quite a good number. Um, so the most fashionable stallions covers um, 70 horses a year, so 50 is a good number. And and he obviously stayed at a distance very well, but is he? do you think he's got the, the capacity to put enough speed into horses? Yes, he, um, if, if you see the uh, race he had in Berlin, the Group 1, he had a very, very good um, turn of foot. And um, his sectional time for the last 200 metres were unbelievably fast. So I think he has everything a good horse should have. And, and reliable man, we, we know well. I mean, he's a, a French derby winner, a British Jockey Club winner for Alain de Waille He's a son of, of Dalakani. He was the highest rated horse in the, in the Southern Hemisphere at the age of five. And he's had a, a very interesting stud career, um, hasn't he? Yes, he um, shuttles between New Zealand and Germany. 
and um, he will come back to Germany this year. Um, I'm awaiting him. I think he will come in three days. And uh, he covers uh, 150 mares over in New Zealand, and then there are something around 40 to 50 mares here in Germany. So um, he's enjoying a break here in Germany then. And, and if you could, if you could tell me um, what your philosophy is, Frank, for for the for the stud, what would it be? Um, yeah, I think mainly we are owner breeders here in Germany, especially Stuttgartgen. Um, Stuttgartgen um, is owned by a foundation, and the interest of the foundation is to keep German racing alive and to keep it um, keep it going. The main interest is not selling horses for profit but still we decide to offer all our yearlings what means we have to think a bit more commercial than we did it um, 30 years ago so it means that um, i have to expect that half of the generation will be colts and the colts i try to sell and frank what are you most looking forward to for for 2022 anything we should keep our eye out, out for I think we have very two very nice reliable mans um, for next year. Arakan, he has already won a Group Three in Italy, and then there is another homebred um, owned by us. He is called Ariolo, and he was very unlucky this year. Um, he was short head beaten in a Group race in Germany and short head beaten in a listed before. So. I hope that he will turn it around next year as a three-year-old. Frank Dorf there from Gestut Rudgen in Germany, and we wish him well and continued success for all three stallions. And our thanks to our friends at Weatherby's, their stallion book and the Global Stallion app. So great news if you've been following this story on this podcast. Finally, the ponies and the people are back at Park Lane Stables here in Teddington, in TW11. Natalie O'Rourke is with me this morning. Uh, Natalie, you are—you sound a little bit out of breath. I'd imagine it's been a frenetic morning, but but great news after what's been a long, long journey and a long struggle. Yeah, we're absolutely over the moon, and uh, we just want to thank everybody that has supported us and stuck by us, because it's been a hell of a storm, but um, we've got there in the end. And um, yeah, we're absolutely delighted, and we're here forever now. We're back for good, so everybody's stuck with us now. <laughs> so just to, to remind everyone, to sort of take us back, we, we you were you were you were threatened with with eviction from the premises, uh, yeah. and then we had to raise a ton of money by crowdfunding. So raised way over a million pounds. All of you raised for. Um, to, to buy the stables then there was the, the protracted process where y- you weren't going to be allowed to buy them and eventually you came to you came to an agreement that's right isn't it that's right yeah that's it in a nutshell so it has been um, quite a struggle um, it's been very complicated and a very complicated legal process um, but yeah we, we, we've got there in the end so we, we're just really pleased that it's all behind us and now we can move forward and just concentrate on helping as many people as possible to access horses um, because that's always been our aim to make make horses accessible to all um, and it means that we can do that forever now and so you've now got a plan you can plan for the future yeah we literally got the keys yesterday um so um, we haven't got a, a plan as such yet but 
but our plan is just to be able to um, benefit more people. So um, we've got a lovely architect that um, is a friend of the stables and he's going to help us to work out how we can um, maximise the use of, of the small space that we have. And one of the things we want to do is... Um, offer like respite for carers or offer um for young people to come and stay with us so that they can you know have a weekend here and enjoy the horses and enjoy bushy park um so that that's the long-term plan that we can benefit more people really than we were before we started this project which is which is fantastic news you say you can make the use of that green space get more children from inner city areas continue your work with the with the riding for the disabled as well yeah absolutely absolutely um yeah and we just um like i say we just want to just benefit more people because now um thanks to everybody's help you know it's raised our profile and more people know about us and know what we're doing so we're just really hoping going forward that we can benefit much more people and we've got more volunteers on board that means we can deliver more sessions um so it's it's had a really positive snowball effect although we've had a difficult year um we have ended up with more help so um yeah we'll have lots more kids on lots more ponies that's the plan well great news finally park lane stables future is secure you've heard about it a lot on the on the podcast and thanks to to natalie her hard work has been an inspiration and lee it's not just those of us in tw11 who can be grateful but an awful lot of other folk too yeah the, the the catchment area within which people benefit from from Park Lane is very significant indeed. It's it's a fabulous place. They do fabulous work, Nick. Um, and I think yeah, we, we've been looking at, at more good news stories in today's pod. And I think this is one where where racing as well can can give itself a pat on the back. I think a lot of people have done a lot of good work with this place. Yourself very much included. And I know of one one racehorse owner who pumped a huge sum of money into the uh, into the appeal to try and raise the money to buy the place. So I think a lot of people have done some tremendous things with Park Lane and that will assist and help Park Lane to do that in the future. It's great news. And do you have a tip for me for today? Oh, I do have a tip for you, Nick, indeed, yes. Recent tips have knocked on the door but haven't gone through, so I'm hoping for better luck today. Um, we have had strange times of late, Nick, but it's reassuring that we have a FOSS last jumps car being staged on heavy ground. That's mm. normality. Um, and Christian Williams doing well at Fosslass is also pretty normal. And I'm suggesting that powerful position who won at the track on similar ground uh, not that long ago can follow up for Christian Williams and Jack Tudor in the 2.55 at Fosslass this afternoon. Powerful position. Lee, what is your favourite David Ellsworth memory? My favourite David Ellsworth memory? Um, I'll tell you what, Nick, in terms of the horses, it would be uh, Persian Punch, winning his uh, his final race, the Jockey Club Cup at Newmarket. I was there that day. That got me uh, enormously welled up. I remember rushing home uh, from school early. I managed to do that to watch Desert Orchids Gold Cup in 1989. And that remains for me the greatest single horse race uh, I've ever seen. Not there in the flesh, but it's still the greatest thing I've ever seen. And in terms of of a memory, I told you those story, the two stories earlier on the pod, Nick. But I'd also say I was down there this year um and uh i, I met him in his, in his office at, at edgerton house then we went across to a room that was next door that was that was full of old form books um and old horses in training books and he pulled one out from 1955 
uh, and showed me that the the first horse he'd he'd ever ridden, and then he talked about the first race he'd ever won. And it, as example of Elsie's humour, he was he was rattling off all these all these successes, and and I I said to him, Elsie. I don't want to blow your trumpet, but at which point he jumped and said, don't want to blow my trumpet. I'm telling you all this so I can blow my own trumpet. Um, he was a man of, uh, he is a man of enormous humour. Um, and as I say, I think anyone who has had any time with Elsie will have tons of happy memories, tons of happy anecdotes. And I look forward to hearing many more in the future. Lee, thanks so much. Um, thank thanks, you very much for listening. That was Thursday, December the 16th. And uh, we will leave you with what Lee described as the greatest jumps race of all time. been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.